My name is Hank Greenberg, and I am a vice chair of the Historical Society of the New York Courts. And it's my distinct pleasure and privilege and honor to uh, um, do this podcast today to discuss the formation of the Historical Society uh, with my dear friend and one of the most eminent jurists in the history of New York law, Judge Albert Rosenblatt. Good morning, Judge. Good morning. And the date is May 31, but we're going to transport ourselves back a couple of decades, Judge. Um, and uh, our task today is to understand how the society under your leadership and, and, and Judith Kay's was formed. And I thought maybe one good place to start would be even before the society was formed, perhaps even before you became a judge of the Court of Appeals in 1999 in terms of your own interest in legal history? Yes, it goes back to uh, well before I was on the court. But my first real affiliation with court history business came when I was on the appellate division and uh, Judge Kay was surveying the pictures in the courtroom, recognizing that these are very illustrious people and when she did the catalog of all of them, there was one missing, and that was Charles Ruggles. His likeness was nowhere to be found. And she called me perhaps, well, because we were friends, but perhaps more likely because she knew that I was a member of the Baker Street Irregulars, the Sherlock Holmes people. So she felt, okay, here's a guy who maybe can help us dig out a likeness of Charles Ruggles. And I thought, oh, chief, this is going to be easy. Oh, my goodness. And everywhere I went to look, uh, the response came back, oh, uh, are you connected with Frances Murray? She had asked us the same question. And I just kept going source after source after source and getting only the uh, response that Fran Murray had already been there looking to no avail. And then by, uh, by good fortune, we had sent out letters to a whole bunch of people and resources and got back word from the Kingston State House that they thought they had a likeness of Charles Ruggles in the daguerreotype about two inches high, maybe, but they didn't know what color eyes he had because they couldn't tell from a daguerreotype. So uh, I called the local friend, philanthropist, uh, Jack Gartland, the Gartland uh, Philanthropic Foundation. We went hustling up to Kingston, we looked at it, and Jack uh, sponsored an artist who would paint a picture from the two-inch daguerreotype, and that picture is now among the others in the New York Court of Appeals. I think it's in the anteroom, I'm pretty sure. So that was my first real encounter with the history, but it was not dull history. It was just so exciting. Judge, in 1999, uh, Governor George Pataki appoints you to our state's highest court, the Court of Appeals. Um, when you come on the court, uh, do you recall when or how you and Judge Kay began to talk about legal history generally or in particular to the society? Yeah, but just a, just a brief word, Hank, that I do remember our earlier exchanges when you were uh, researching, uh, let's see, Lewis Marshall, we would talk about that. And then you did a fine historical piece on 
the impeachment of Governor Sulzer. I think you did some work on that. So we had some exchanges uh, that way, and that's how we became pals uh, in the court history. We did, we did. One last footnote to that. I remember as a law student, I'm not sure you'll remember this, uh, but I can place the year, it would have been about 1985 and I was a law student. Uh, and I uh, was working in a law office that had a matter before you, you were a trial court judge. And uh, I came into your chambers and you started talking to me and somehow or other, somehow or other, the conversation turned to my interest in legal history. And that led to you autographing for me a copy of a book that you wrote uh, about New York's drug laws and uh, loaning me a copy. I saw a volume, uh, a, a book about uh, former Chief Judge Lauren's writing style. This all happened in your chambers and I'm a second year law student. Yeah, Judge Lauren, uh, Lessons from Lauren by Francis Bergen. Right. Uh, I remember that I have it, I value it and I treasure it and I give it to my students. And uh, yes, on the drug book that I wrote, I do ha I have had a lot of those several hundred extra copies that we never sold and we use them for insulation in the walls. <laughs> well, yes. I cherish my inscribed copy. I was, you can imagine, I was a second year law student. Uh, insulation. Okay, you don't have to use it for insulation, but it's very good uh, for insulation in the walls. <laughs> well, that that's at least how you, certainly you and I, I can mark the date I first met you in your chambers when you were a, a Supreme Court justice. But uh, to fast forward from that, 1985, 14 years later, you're on the Court of Appeals. How old were um, you in 1985, I I let's see. I was a law student. I would have been 24, oh, 24, my. 25. Uh, and I have the book. And the last thing I'll sort of say about this is when you were a judge of the Court of Appeals, I brought the book to the courthouse and you autographed it again. So I have two inscriptions in that book. Well, the second inscription is going to fetch at least $2.85 <laughs> no. on eBay. <laughs> Um, but uh, I, I'd like to talk now about the extraordinary partnership um, that you and uh, Judith Kay had when you came on the Court of Appeals, and perhaps you could talk a little bit about that. There was great synergy. I, I admired her so much, uh, but we became real good good friends uh, early on. We would. And, uh, be forever on the telephone when we were not in Albany into late hours into the night talking about this and that. But uh, with, a, uh, with a surefire uh, shared uh, interest in history. And I remember uh, we would get up in the morning uh, because the Albany sessions were sort of monastic. And uh, Judith had what she called not a nine to five job. She called it a five to nine job, meaning She'd wake up at five in the morning, come over to the courthouse and leave at nine. I, being a rather late riser, would get there at six, not as early as she. So I'd get there at six and day after day after day, uh, the two of us would sit there. I would eat uh, raw oatmeal, which amused her, but somehow I thought it was healthy for you. Maybe it was, 
I want to think so. And uh, the topic as often as not would drift into court history, aided no doubt by the occasional appearance of one or two of the maintenance people, uh, Mike Mayo and Brian Amy, and every once in a while they would come down uh, and knock on the door and come to the chief judge's chambers and they would say something like, oh chief, we were up in the attic again yesterday and we found this, either it's a portrait or an icon or something with court history, the treasures were all in the attic. And that kind of influenced and stirred up the interest in history. And we were just so excited because there seemed to be no end of historical treasures up in the attic. And she referred to these two folks as her curators. So that was really a great uh, and exciting uh, origin. When you came on the court and you began to form this extraordinary partnership uh, with Chief Judge Kay, did you come to learn of her own passion for legal history? Um, and, and, and how she sort of got to that place where the two of you come together um, and do these great things? Oh, sure. Uh, one of the foundational points of interest uh, in her uh, quest to uh, learn and unearth the, the, uh, the, the rich history was uh, a book, uh, There Shall Be. This is a foundational document. Uh, she did it with the assistance of Francis Murray. This to me is, was a Bible because it is an extraordinary um, research device that goes into the various benches of seven or sometimes eight or 10 or however many over the years. And that was a key item in, uh, in uh, triggering her uh, history or in furthering it. Another book called Dually and Constantly Kept. The Historical Society was not involved in that nor was Judge Kay, but it, it was one of the documents we always look to when it's by Jim Fultz, who's a remarkable, wonderful researcher. And it was he and Tom Roller, who, as you may know, as you may recall, recently unearthed the document by which, uh, by, by which we, we learned that in, in, uh, in Kingston, uh, Sojourner Truth had a lawsuit and Jim Fultz found the writ of habeas corpus uh, in the Kingston records. So Jim Fultz is another person who uh, has been a great source along with, with, uh, with Tom Roller. The other's uh, origins were of course, when we were sitting in the courtroom, we realized that there's not a lot of history about the individual judges whose oil paintings are hanging. So we set about to find out what we could and we were able to locate a folder in which uh, the former clerk, Jack Matthews, had maybe a page or a half a page of maybe one fourth of the judges. We said, let's expand on this. Let's really see if we can turn it from 25% and make and write biographies as to all of them. So that sort of launched us on uh, something more uh, formal with uh, the history project. And then at one breakfast, I don't remember who said it, she or I, but we both were thinking very much along the same lines. And we both said, why don't we form a historical society of the courts? And that way um, we could get a lot of this thing into a formal organization. 
we could create a structure and uh, uh, she being the chief judge, of course, when, when if you want to form a historical society and the chief judge wants to do it, well, it's going to get done. So we really immediately reached out to uh, a lot of friends and colleagues who were among the most eminent members of the bar, thank you, yourself included, and formed uh, sort of a, a small coterie of people who, I guess for want of a better word, or maybe the best word would be, were the initial sort of charter members, although we were quite loose and informal until Fran Murray played an important role and she then got us to the uh, regents where we were incorporated and had a bunch of rules and bylaws and then we had a real structure. Uh, sometime after that, uh, we appreciated that if we're going to be a society, many of the people in the initial group were judges and uh, we didn't want to have any um, occasion in which the judges had their hands out for dues or fundraising because fundraising obviously had to become a part of it. So by then, maybe a year or so later, we set up uh, a board, like we call it something like an administrative board, which was a euphemism for people who would raise money. And that's when Leo Balonis first came into the picture and he was the head of that. How, if you recall, did we move from sort of the abstract of creating a society to the concrete, actually creating the society and going to the regents and doing all of those steps. How, did, how, how judge did you and Judge K figure out uh, how to do this, how to create a society? Well, we, they gave us rules. First, we were loose and we had a lot of ideas popping out, uh, brainstorming, thinking out loud. And suddenly, after we were uh, sort of licensed uh, and legitimized by the uh, regents. Then we had rules and we had to have a, uh, 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 an election system. We had to have a, 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 a system of uh, bylaws and a charter. And then we became formal and we were no longer floating on air, but we had, we had real structures. So we had to subscribe to those rules. Did, did you do, or you and Judge Kay and, and Francis Murray and others, um, any research about what other societies around the country did? We turned first and foremost to the United States Supreme Court Historical Societies, figuring, well, if they have a historical society, how do they deal with touchy or ethical issues dealing with fundraising. How is it set up? And we looked at them and we uh, met a chap named Leon Silverman and had some contact with him. I'm going to guess that if Judith Kay's letters can ever be uh, found, uh, she might not have, I know she destroyed a lot owing to confidentiality, but be that as it may, uh, we had communications by phone and possibly by letter with Leon Silverman, and he told us how the U.S. Supreme Court Historical Society was set up. Uh, we wanted to be very fastidious about keeping judges away from the fundraising business, and we looked to the Supreme Court for that, and based on what we learned from that, we set up uh, our own uh, rules for doing that. Now, as I understand it, because I, I, I have a copy of the document here, uh, it's dated April 23, 2002. Uh, the regents, 
within the state education department uh, conferred upon the society a provisional charter. And then the first meeting of the board takes place a month later. Uh, the inaugural meeting of the Board of Trustees, which we have the minutes. That is great. Who's on the board, Hank? Can you tell us uh, all the names you have written down? Yeah, yeah. The 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 charter uh, trustees. Yeah. Uh, were of course yourself and Judge K. Uh, uh, Jonathan Lippman, who I think was then the chief administrative judge. Yeah. Stuart Cohen, who was the clerk of the Court of Appeals. Uh, Dick Bartlett. Oh. who had been and done everything uh, at that point, pretty much. Sure. Former, like yourself, an administrative judge and an assemblyman and Supreme Court justice. John Gordon, um, historian extraordinaire and attorney in private practice extraordinaire. Uh, Steve Crane, uh, who was a few years away from being president of the State Bar and was a partner at Proskauer and a former Judge K. Law Clerk. Uh, Judge Leo Malonis, who I think at the time was still on the First Department, I'm not sure, in, in 2002, a Justice of the Appellate Division First Department. Francis Murray, uh, who you mentioned before, uh, was at the Court of Appeals and myself. So, what a group. Oh my, what a group. It was a loose confederation of, of the best people we knew. We just <laughs> said, let's, let's bring on all the people who care. And who count? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so, in any event, and then there's the 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 first meeting of the board on May 28, 2002, and we have the minutes. And I have to say, both because I was there and I I do remember it, and the minutes, which themselves are a historical document. I mean, it's. It's labeled meeting of the inaugural meeting of the board of trustees. So this was created for history, but it was between the magnificently choreographed and organized. You and Judge K, it was like a Broadway musical. Um, and I remember the board meeting because it, it was with military precision, went through that agenda and, and it was something to behold. I what. What are your thoughts or recollections just about that period when you're organizing, you know, all these steps that had to be taken, all the mechanics? Um, like a Broadway musical orchestra, some enchanted morning. Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, I remember the excitement of it all because we were launching something that was unprecedented and we knew. I think everybody there had a sense of history that there was so much to unearth. We all knew, although not with any exactitude, that we'd go back to 1664 to the Dutch or even earlier to the start of New York and Albany in 1620s. So we had like, you know, almost 400 years of history. And it was like sitting, uh, you know, alongside a mountain of whipped cream, figuring let's let's start uh, looking into some of these uh, historical features. And we knew that this was going to be great. If somebody told me that you and I would be having this conversation 20 years later, Hank, I would have thought, oh my God, 20 years? That's, that's a lifetime. <laughs> it's 20 years. I remember, Judge, just uh, because you're, 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 
your app coin about looking at models like the Supreme Court Historical Society. At one of the early meetings, I think it was Leon Polsky came and spoke. And I thought at the time he made a very persuasive case for the importance of the society to be of assistance to the court system, the Supreme Court Historical Society to the Supreme Court in terms of programming and ideas. And yes, the fundraising pieces and all of those kind of components, it was necessary to keep that away from the judges themselves for all the obvious ethical reasons. But I, my, my memory was Leon Polsky, you and Judge K were very, it seemed to me very clear that our mission was to help the courts collect their history. Um, at least that to me was the mission early on, to be of assistance to the Court of Appeals in helping it organize its history and the other courts in the state. Does that jive with, with your memory? Well, surely that was a part of it, but I do think that the society per se had its own identity beyond, above and beyond helping the court system. Any court system is helped when it has a written and uh, abundant account of its history, but the historical society went beyond the court of appeals and helping the court of appeals because we soon branched out and we soon recognized that there's an awful lot of history county by county. And when you start unearthing the legal history of Oneida County, Erie County, Westchester County, Dutchess County, Albany County, that that created a separate branch. So it was really both. Judge, I'd like to talk a little bit about after you do the groundwork, and there was an enormous amount of groundwork to actually create the society, organize its structure, appoint the charter trustees, figure out how it's going to work. Um, uh, some of the initial program ideas, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll just sort of kick this off because it, the first calendar, that extraordinary series of calendars, the society, beautifully pr produced, uh, thoughtful and scholarly, unlike anything I've ever quite seen before. The first one comes about, as I understand it, in 2003, several months after the society is formed. But could you talk a little bit about, because I know that was pretty much you and pretty close to all you, as best I can recall, your idea for it? I guess it just, you know, came to us that a calendar is worthwhile. <clears throat> the first calendar was just a bunch of snapshots of courthouses around the state uh, done by a local friend, a deputy sheriff named Trout, T-R-A-U-D-T, as I recall, and we used those pictures. I think that was the first one. And then after you did the first one, well, okay, it's time to do a second one. By the time we got to the third calendar, by then I started to try to create themes for each year calendar. And that's been really a great joy. It seems like there's endless number of themes that you can do for the calendar. This year's calendar was New Yorkers who exhibited uh, uncommon political courage. And that was just a, uh, you're gonna reach out for it. Yeah, yeah, there it is. <clears throat> and uh, now the society, which is of course now uh, it has a staff and uh, Marilyn Marcus, of course, and, and uh, Nancy Era. But when I do these calendars now, I think probably for the last 10 years or so, 
I do the calendar usually in the summer and I do it with Google images to back up the stories for each month. Then it goes to Allison who changes a great many of the images in order to keep us out of copyright lawsuits. And she's kept us well above any problems like that. So when I do the images, she knows what to look for, but she gets them clean, whereas mine may have been anything. And I know that she's going to clean them up for us and find free sources or other sources. So that's been a great uh, addition and contribution to the calendars. So over the years, uh, there are so many different avenues or themes that um, uh, it, it seems to be uh, endless. So I think, I hope I can do a few more before my string runs out. Well, for 20 years, I have looked forward every year to the calendar and I have used them faithfully for 20 years. And the only thing I'd say is they are so beautifully produced that I cannot bring myself to write on them when I see a date. So I use it, but I can't write on it because it in itself, it, it, it's a document worth keeping. Other kinds of, at least at the beginning, as you're launching, vision for growing the membership of the society and finding programming that would be of interest to them. Right. The first program, we just looked for people illustrious as we could find. And of course, when you're dealing with New York history, uh, John Kaminsky is at the very helm. Uh, John Kaminsky wrote five thick volumes on the documentary history of the ratification alone. So when you have the events of 1788 in New York on the ratification of the United States Constitution, in New York, which was in Poughkeepsie, which drew things closer to me because it's right on the street corner where my office had been for all my uh, career as a DA and as, as a judge. Kaminsky is a, is a primary source of, uh, uh, of history. So we asked John Kaminsky to give a talk and uh, Pauline Mayer was among our first speakers. And I think uh, John Murren. So we got three really uh, well-known uh, eminent historians to be one of the first speakers at a program. We brought them into the New York City bar <laughs> with the red rugs and the black chairs and uh, two or three people, two or 300 people showed up. And then we began to appreciate that this is a statewide society. And, and although the 44th Street Bar Association is a beautiful venue, we have to start having programs in Buffalo and Rochester and Albany and other parts of the state. So that way we kind of spread out our branches. It seems as though early on, Judge, uh, forging partnerships with the New York State Bar Association and the City Bar uh, was valuable to the society and certainly valuable to them. And I remember like the initial rollout, uh, our announcement to the world, if you will, or the, uh, the, the legal profession in New York consisted of a cover story in the State Bar Journal and a New York Law Journal article. And then it seems as though uh, home court for us, at least in terms of programming, was the City Bar. I, I take your point about doing statewide programming when we have. But I remember in the earlier, so many amazing programs at the City Bar. 
and that, yeah. you know, the beautiful Great Hall. Oh, beautiful venue with uh, the speakers would sit up on that uh, elevated bench. It's just so elegant and so inviting and a great many people would show up. We would often fill the room. It was just wonderful. Um, I hope we can continue to do that uh, after the current misery ends. Uh, it's hard to imagine 300 people sitting there with masks. I think it, it, uh, it disturbs the general serenity of the room when you see people sitting there with masks. Let's hope for the day where we can all sit there unmasked so we don't look like the Jesse James gang. <laughs> we do look forward to that. Uh, perhaps a, a word or two about the initial publications of the society, uh, the, the, the function of producing scholarship, uh, what your vision was and Judge Kay's vision was for doing that and how you implemented that vision. Yeah, uh, we had we began with what we thought was uh, going to be a, a scholarly journal. We put out but one issue, and uh, we just found it was impossible to sustain it. Uh, Alicia Willette was the editor in chief and had some marvelous articles and a wonderful board of editors, but uh, we just couldn't sustain that. And in its place, it sort of morphed into something that began as a newsletter, but expanded into a, uh, a quasi-historical journal with great articles. That's where Gordon's article came in on the Lemon Slave case. And we have a history of many publications of what we later called, by then Marilyn got into the picture, what we called uh, Judicial Notice. I don't remember the name of it earlier, if it even had a name, but we called it Judicial Notice uh, later on. And uh, I have all the copies and I'm sure many of us do. I even have a copy of the first issue of the so-called uh, scholarly journal. It seems to me too, even from the minutes of the first board meeting, there was a lot of thought given to um, making sure that we memorialized history in real time for those who were history makers through oral history. Um, could you sort of share what, what your vision was with respect to that? We uh, tried to identify a series of people who played important roles in the uh, bench and bar of New York. Uh, the, the older, the better, because their memories could stretch back early uh, and they would give us oral histories. And we began with Judge Dick Simons uh, and then Dick Bartlett. Uh, who was an extraordinary, they were both extraordinary people. Um, judge Simons is a judge, of course. Dick Bartlett, having been head of the Bartlett Commission that wrote the penal law of 1967, uh, assembly minority leader, dean of Albany Law School. Oh my, uh, and he could, and he did give us a great oral history. I think, I think Steve Younger may have been at the microphone um, interviewing him, but we have a, maybe I think 10 or 12 oral histories, and that's very much a part of our inventory. The Historical Society of the Courts of the State of New York does not exist uh, without Al Rosenblatt. Uh, uh, what it has achieved, its successes have been due, I wouldn't say almost entirely, uh, but let's just say the but-for cause. Um, um, as it has moved from strength to strength over the last 20 years, 
that's due an extraordinary measure to your dedication, your devotion, your passion, your inspiration, your historical expertise and knowledge. So we are the beneficiaries of that. I was wondering for you, what has it meant for you? Um, what, what have you derived from your experience? You've given so much to the society. Uh, looking back on its 20 years, what are your, what are your thoughts about the work of the society and your role in it? Well, it's more, it, in a way you might say it's a hobby, but that's, uh, that doesn't sufficiently describe uh, the passion that goes with it, although hobbies can be passionate. Uh, it was a very much a part of my life because I feel part of the court system. <clears throat> I think I was touched, touched, as maybe the Westerners would say, T-E-T-H-E-D. I think I may have been touched when, in 1988, we were celebrating the 200th anniversary of the ratification of the United States Constitution. It was in Poughkeepsie. And the celebration was in Poughkeepsie. And oh my God, Steve Schechter was there, John Kaminsky, and really great uh, state historians. And I realized that I was in the building, my office was in the very, on the very ground the hallowed ground that was trod by Alexander Hamilton and Melanchthon Smith when they were ratifying the Constitution. And I realized I'm going to work on this hallowed ground. So I felt a real kinship with New York's origins and with the constitutional origins. And that's when I think that really struck a chord that got me started. That was 1988. It was maybe a decade later that it became more formal and got, and got involved with the chief judge, maybe when I was on the appellate division before that. But probably it goes back to the 1988 ratification, bicentennial, 200 years. I thought, what an extraordinary event. Oh, what a time we had. Uh, we put on the program uh, and invited a lot of great speakers. We set up a transcontinental messaging system in which we were able to speak with the custodians of Magna Carta in Lincolnshire, England. And we set up the communication in which we in 1988 in the summer are speaking with the custodian of Magna Carta. And we were speaking back and forth. That was one of the exciting events. Another exciting event was we went down to the Hudson River and uh, we researched the colleges that had, that existed in 1788 that are around today. And of course they are the schools that we all know to be the old, uh, uh, among the first colleges. And I asked each of those schools to send a boat uh, to row on the Hudson River and uh, Columbia sent a boat, University of Pennsylvania sent a boat. And to this day, I'm pals with Mike McDermott. As a matter of fact, we've been out on the river in a double, he taught me how to row. And that was another great memory that came from this because Mike put together a Penn rowing team uh, of assorted rowers on the river that day. Columbia was there and two or three other crews. So that's so exciting and that, those are sort of things that you don't forget, and they really advance 
uh, your passion because it's all tied up in a lifetime that deals with your own uh, interests and your own professional life and indeed even your private life. Beautifully said, Judge. Um, any, any final thoughts uh, uh, that we should uh, uh, memorialize today? Uh, for those 20 years, 40 years, 100 years from now, when they look back at the incredible work that you and Judge Kay did forming the society? Oh, just a lot of immense gratitude for the uh, memory of my, of my dear friend, Judith, who we missed so, so much. And, uh, and, the, uh, um, and the role that you played and Marilyn uh, uh, and, uh, and Allison, uh, and, and Dan Sierra and the board that has kept the society alive with new ideas, new people, uh, injecting new, new, uh, new systems and injecting new points of interest. Uh, and the board members have been wonderful in doing that. Jonathan, of course, uh, Steve Younger, uh, the interest that you've shown, Hank, in doing that. And I just am so grateful to know all of you and to be uh, partners with all of you in doing that. Well, uh, Judge Rosenblatt, I know I speak for the board, but let me venture to say, I think I speak for the people of the state of New York. Your service uh, over these many decades um, as a district attorney, as a trial judge, as an appellate division judge, as a court administrator, as a brilliant jurist, as a preeminent figure in New York legal history. That legacy continues to grow and we owe so much to you. Thank you for those blessings.